0: and welcome to the Tofugu podcast. My name is Michael.
1: And I'm Kristen.
0: <laughs> and we're joined here today by Alexander O. Smith, a games and manga and many other things translator. Hello, Alex. Hi. Good morning. So, Alex, uh, we're just going to get started. I want for people who maybe not know your large body of work, uh, what you do, if you could just uh, introduce yourself and let people know
2: a little bit about you sure uh, I am a translator as was just said and I live in Japan I've been doing translation professionally for almost 20 years now started off doing subtitles for TV shows moved on to game translation started novel translation somewhere along along the way and that about sums it up.
0: How did you get into? Uh, you said you started out with with uh, subtitles. You said for anime.
2: That's right. Actually, I did some subtitles for anime, but the, my first paying job was doing subtitles for Kiku Television in Hawaii.
0: Oh yeah, it's a
2: part-time job. They
0: they had like some crayon shinchan. That's like the only place I've seen crayon shinchan like before. It was. Brought over like in 2006 or something.
2: Right, right. So I was doing that in 1995, I think, maybe 1996. So it was pre and Xinjiang era. Mm-hmm. I was doing what are called home drama in, in Japan, the soap operas.
0: And how did you get started like studying Japanese even before you got to the translating
2: part? Like what got you interested? The short version is I went to China in the last year of high school. So I went to high school, just a public school in, in northern Vermont, uh, but they did an exchange program with, with China. And I went there for three months, I'd say, and that really got me into Asian languages. And somewhere along the line, I decided that Japanese was cool and I would study it. And that's about all it took. Wow. That's like a very like clean and simple motivation. You're just like,
0: this Japanese looks cool. Let's go for this.
2: Yeah, it really was. I actually, it was a Airline menu uh, that I was checking out on the way home from China that had Chinese, Korean, Japanese, and English on it. The thought was in my head was literally, "Hey, that looks cool." And then I found out later that about katakana, which is the Japanese syllable that's used for foreign loan words, and that just seemed far more elegant than uh, the Chinese method of throwing random (laughs) characters at words.
0: So you got you went from there. You went from like the menu on the plane being like Japanese (laughs) is cool. Then you study Japanese for a long, long time, or short, short time, yep. I don't know how long you studied, until um, <laughs> you got into translating, and then you ended up translating a lot of games, um, and yep. if I could read just a few, we got your, your whole body of work here in front of us, but uh, you did, uh, you worked on uh, Final Fantasy VIII, uh, Front Mission III, uh, Final Fantasy Nine, Legend of Mana, Final Fantasy Ten, Twelve, and there's way, way more than that, but... Yeah, that's, that's a pretty exciting uh, uh, body of work. Um, is, there, is there one in particular that you that you feel like is,
2: is really close to your heart? Each project is really its own beast. So there's probably something I could say about all of them, at least the, the ones that I remember. The, certainly the, the most memorable, though, has been Final Fantasy XII, mm-hmm. which was just in terms of its length and its depth and the complexity of the project. It was also the first project that I worked full-time with my current translation partner and partner at Kaja Productions, which is our translation company, or I guess localization company is what it would be called, uh, Joseph Reeder, who was an employee of Square or Square Enix when we first met, working on Final Fantasy X-2, the sequel to Final Fantasy X. And when Final Fantasy XII came around and I was asked to put together a team, I I said, oh, I want that guy, the guy that I worked with on 10 And so that was a real trial by Fire for us. Long, long hours spent translating Final Fantasy XII. But I, it's one of the only games that I've done that I can look back on now. And there's really not much that I would change which hmm. I can't say that about everything else, Yeah,
1: that's a feeling I feel like I don't have much ever.
2: <laughs> it's rare. I, I, It really doesn't apply to pretty much everything else I've done. I, it's very difficult to look at something that I've done and not start second-guessing myself. So 12 is the exception.
1: <laughs> so how did you end up getting a position in Squaresoft in the first place? Because um, I think... People thinking of Square Enix as it is now, they think, wow, it must be so difficult to get a position there. How did you, after just doing um, some subtitle work, how did you end up trying to help out with their translations and eventually getting a position?
2: Right. So I was in grad school at the time, actually. When I was in Hawaii working for KIKU, K-I-K-U I had a temporary position at the University of Hawaii Manoa studying classical Japanese. And I decided I want to continue with that, got into a Ph.D. program back on the mainland. And after two years, realized that I didn't want to become a professor (laughs) and I didn't and I didn't want to spend the next 13 to 17 years becoming a professor. I started looking at job listings and at that moment, uh, Squaresoft in California had a listing for a translation position. So I called them up. They flew me out for an interview, which was pretty interesting, actually, because I'm pretty sure most of the people that interviewed me had not read my, my resume or knew who I was at all, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> not, that, not that I had much on my resume at, at the time, but there was an assumption. And I, and I think the translation industry or the game translation industry, I should say, was very young at the time. And we were only like a couple years out of zero wing territory at that point. Mm hmm. So people really didn't know what to look for in a translator and that was reflected in the people who were translators at companies not not SquareSoft I think was definitely on the good side of that spectrum. But there was a real mishmash of people and skill levels and people who should have been checkers being translators and people who should have been translators being checkers and that sort of thing, uh, because localization was so young that the industry didn't know where to put people to to get the most out of them. So in a sense, it, maybe it was easier in those days to get a job at a at a Square or a Nintendo than, than it would be now.
0: Yeah, I'd read recently uh, that... At the end of Final Fantasy VII, the the team was like, "Oh, we need a bigger team for localization because suddenly Seven was so popular." Whereas before, like the Japanese RPG wasn't quite what it had become, and then right. as soon as Seven came out, they're like, "Oh, we need to up our game a little bit." And then then and you came in, you said in, in Final Fantasy VIII, that's right, um, to work on on part of that. So. So what, was there kind of like a, a feeling of a, a shift in culture going on that you were like jumping into? In retrospect,
2: sure. Although it was a very slow shift. It took Square maybe four years after that to actually have an official localization department. Hmm. Wow. Up until that point, it had just been one aspect of, of IT So not just administratively, but also I think conceptually, localization was really a black box to the Japanese parent company. And by black box, I mean some system whereby they take text that's in Japanese and they plug it into the black box and then it spits out in English and they don't know what goes on inside the box and they don't really care. It's it's really one part of a larger process. And that approach towards localization, which is still the approach that that many companies have, it, it's based on sort of cost and schedule, a cost and schedule approach to localization, which is certainly important, but leaves behind all of the other things that localization needs to be in order to produce really good games in other languages. Things like, I guess, allowance of, how to say this Creative agency mm-hmm. to to the translators. Uh, if you're stuck in a black box, you may not feel like you have the right to change things, even though things need to be changed. And this is certainly not the case anymore at Square uh, or places like Nintendo or, or really any major game company. I think they they know the score now, and they have much better communication between development teams and localization.
1: So back in the day, back when. This was more of an idea of, well, we'll we'll throw this this Japanese text to a group and we'll get it back. Right. Um, what What were the roles that were created because you said that there are checkers and there are you know there's a certain lead role, I guess, you could say, with mm-hmm. localization teams. what What are those roles? What are the jobs that need to be done?
2: So you've got your localization specialists, uh, also known as translators and you have your project coordinators. Oh, and then QA. Mm -hmm. And as far as formal roles go, that probably sums that up. But within that, there's a a real broad range of talents and systems that sort of evolve organically, whereby you'll have one person be sort of a lead translator. And the things that they focus on on a project may be slightly different than a translator working with them would focus on. Uh, In my particular partnership, although some things we do really 50-50 like dialogue, when it comes to menu items, we found that Joe is just much better at that than I am. He has a he has a real eye for detail. Uh he used to be a, be an accountant actually, and that really really helps. It's a hugely important skill set to bring to localization because there's so many moving parts and so much minutia that needs to be taken care of. And so he's much better at that and I go fairly fast with dialogue, and so often when we're working on a project I'll do the first pass on all the dialogue and then and he'll do the first pass on all the menu stuff because that's how we're most efficient. And then we do what's what we call a cross check Mm -hmm. where we pass everything that we've done to the other person. They go through it, leave comments. Sometimes we'll just talk through the whole thing uh, that especially true with names and things like that, where there might be a lot of discussion involved. So it's a real collaborative process. Mm. And I think in localization departments, you, you get that happening on a slightly larger scale with three or four people involved in localization. You'll usually have one lead translator, so everyone knows where the buck stops. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, there's a lot of sharing of responsibility and back and forth. Uh, so lots of different roles to do. The checking is really important. Uh, QA, of course, is a whole nother phase that usually happens after the translation's done, but sometimes it'll happen as translations going on, especially these days with mobile games where the work is really never done because they keep releasing updates
0: and you mentioned uh I thought it was really interesting you were talking about the menu items you know being like a whole separate mm-hmm. kind of skill set, and then of course there's yeah. dialogue and then there's you know all these different pieces uh, so what makes uh, translating games different uh, than something like translating? anime or manga or something where it's like, well, you got the script, you've got, you know, the show, that's, that's what you've got to translate. But with, with games, there seems to be a lot more to, to handle like, oh, what, what kind of, what other kind of differences are there?
2: Right. Well, one way of thinking about that is really any kind of translation or, or any kind of writing has something it's going for this sort of model, ideal model of what the text should look like. So, for example, if you're translating a biology text or something like that, something technical, it's going to have a certain feel in English when, once you've translated it. it. It needs to fit in the larger picture of how people write biology texts in English. And it's the same thing when you get into games. If you're translating a fighting game, it, it wants to feel like a fighting game that was written in English. And if you're translating a, an MMO, it wants to feel like an MMO that was written in English. And sometimes that's not a very straightforward process. And, and every time it requires picking apart what was there originally in the Japanese and putting it together in a way that is not only entertaining and coherent, but also fits the genre that you're writing for. And so when you've got somebody um, doing menu items, say, for a game... You really want somebody who could write those menu items in English originally, you know, who could design a game and write the menus and make a good UI and understand how text messages need to get across certain information fast and, and dirty. What needs to be immediately obvious, where is a good place to throw in a little flavor uh, and where you should just be as tourist as possible that sort of awareness of the, of the genre is really, really important. And that is true really across the board, but it requires very specific understanding. You know, how should game dialogue sound if you've got choices in the, in the game, how do those work? How to, how do branching, branching choices work, that sort of thing.
1: So when you have like a larger kind of JRPG epic, mm-hmm. like one of the final fantasies, um, when you're translating that, would you say that you have a different kind of voice and mindset than when you're doing like Phoenix, right?
2: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And really every game sort of sets its own bar in terms of quality and leeway flexibility. Mm-hmm. How, you know, how far a game will allow you to push it uh, for something like Final Fantasy 12. The story is set. You have a lot of fully animated action scenes and things that will, you know, obviously can't change.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then a lot of even lip flaps that need to be matched uh, with the dialogue. So you're working in some really strong constraints. And at the same time, the game world is set in a sort of faux medieval Europe setting. And so it it's calling for a certain approach to the language and everything. Whereas with something like Phoenix Wright, it's a modern setting. There's a little less... Language requirement basically you don't need to people don't need to sound arch or you know mm-hmm. period at all. Uh, however, they do need to be funny and that's a completely different set of, of requirements really in in both situations it translation becomes in a sense a highly guided writing process hmm. where you know the information that needs to be given and you know the arcs of the characters, but everything else, really needs to be written anew. And uh, that's certainly very, very true for something like Phoenix Wright, where obviously a lot of the jokes just aren't going to work in Japanese. And for anyone who doesn't know Phoenix Wright, it's that the lawyer, uh, the action lawyer game, a sorely unrepresented genre, underrepresented genre. Mm. Yeah.
1: I was just going to say, I feel like um, playing that game because I, I had never played anything like that before. And when it came out, I was like, all right, I'll give this a shot. And, It was. I remember thinking, this must be very different in Japanese (laughs) and having moments of going, I really want to know what this was, because there are things that are changed. But it wasn't enough. It it wasn't so much that I was upset Uh at any moment. I was just like, I really want to know what this was. So that I could see what the difference was. And I, I always um, kick myself for not getting two copies so that I could sit there and look. Um, but I right. feel like you you must have had a lot of fun ch- like trying to make jokes work that weren't for a Japanese audience.
2: For sure. And, and really, it was actually a, a real pleasure to work on because it couldn't be translated in mm-hmm. the traditional sense, a lot of it. But the original was very well written and so it had great sort of comedic pacing. Mm-hmm. And the structure of the jokes was very solid, so you'd have the setup and then the punchline, and it was very reliable. There and there wasn't a whole lot of extraneous stuff along the way. So, because actually, a lot of you know, the dirty secrets of game localization is that sometimes you're translating things, or many times you're translating things that aren't very well written mm-hmm. in the original, or aren't very well told as a story, and so a big burden of the job becomes, gee, you know, what, what do I what do I try to fix? Uh, what do I try to, to make work better narratively? And that can actually detract a lot from the final translation because you end up spending just a lot of time trying to figure out how to say things better. But if you start with something like Phoenix Wright, the uh, Phoenix Wright 1, Ace Attorney, it was so well written in the Japanese that the structure was all there and all you had to do is, substitute in things that made sense to, to a Western audience, uh, and, and write your own jokes. And that was made a lot easier because the characters were so clearly defined in the Japanese that you could just sort of let those voices keep going on in English and, and, and write the characters. So it's, it's very much a writing exercise at that Mm.
1: point. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I think a lot of people, um, don't realize that if you want to become more of a professional translator, you have to wear a lot of hats. (laughs) Sure. Uh, so, especially with having to make kind of executive decisions, because a lot of, I think a lot of translation is having to have the confidence to make an executive decision without stepping on anyone's toes. Absolutely. Um, have you ever, now, when you were working on a game, were you ever able to talk to, say, the one of the main writers of the game or maybe a director or a producer or something. Does the does the translation or localization team have access to that? Or are you kind of just like, here's your script. You don't even get to see the game. Good luck.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I wish that it was more of the former and less of the latter, but even today it's it's probably Overall, the sort of industry-wide, it would be maybe 10% full access, 90% no access at all. And certainly the in-house translators at Square have, and I'm sure at other game companies, I, I, I don't know as specifically as I know at Square. But at Square, they have quite a lot of contact with the development team to the point that usually on the larger projects, the lead translator will not be sitting in the localization area. He'll go, he or she will go sit in the, in a booth uh, with the dev team.
1: That's awesome.
2: Yeah. And that is awesome. And, and it's really important. And, and it gets to just what you were saying there about sort of having the confidence to make changes. You really do have to approach, approach localization from the, the standpoint of a creator And, uh, gets back to word that I brought up earlier, which was agency. That's sort of the feeling that you have the right to make changes because just in general, looking at localization, you know, it's really easy to point your finger at something like zero wing or, or a localization that sort of got something wrong, you know, actual mistranslation as saying, Oh, that's, that's a bad translation or that's a, that's a bad localization, but far more prevalent and far more insidious are the localizations that are technically accurate, but not really interesting, just sort of blah. And a big reason, and, and often it's not because the translator didn't have the ability to do that, uh, you know, they just weren't a good writer. That's, that's often not the case. The, the case is that even if they're a good writer, they don't feel that they have the, the right to make the changes that they need to make. Or politically, it's difficult for them to push back against the dev team, mm-hmm. say, when it comes down to making decisions about direction and things that are not traditionally seen as fitting within the black box of localization.
0: So do you feel like, I mean, I guess it could go either way, but do, do you have a preference of that kind of situation? Like, oh, there's a lot of hands-on connection, or do you kind of like that it's like, here's the project, and then you get all the decision-making power
2: on your end if they're gonna dump it in my lap and they really I don't know if don't care is the word but it it, but they but they really let me have my way with it that's certainly at this point in my career I'm very happy to do that Hmm. Uh, because it's efficient and if I need to say do a voice recording I know who to call and I know the people that I want to work with and yeah, that works great for me. I, that would be terrifying and, and a horror and a disaster if it was a new, somebody new <laughs> in the industry hmm. because there's so many things that need to, you were talking about wearing different hats. You, you do have to wear lots of different hats and oftentimes you have to wear them all at the same time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And if you weren't, if you hadn't done it several times before, I, I think that could be really daunting and, and probably disastrous. It sounds like you need
0: like a whole lot of, you know, besides just the ability to translate Japanese to English, you need to be able to write. Because, you know, it it hadn't hadn't really thought about how you might get handed something that's like, oh, this is a comedy. I have to be funny now. Oh, this one's a drama. I have to really like pull on people's heartstrings now. It's like you don't just be like, oh, I'm just going to. Like you said, like you could just, you know, translate literally and be really boring. But you've got to also be a good writer.
2: That's (laughs) true. And it's very, would be hard to overstate that because translation is a very technical skill. There's a lot of knowledge and practice and sort of training that you need to go through to become a translator. And I think that people who might be considering translation as a career, especially if you're in college and you're learning another language and you're interested in something like video games and you, you, know, you say, Hey, you know, translating video games could be a way of using this thing. The skill that I'm learning right now, you f- tend to focus on those boxes that you have to check off the, Oh, I need to learn Japanese. That's mm-hmm. a really important box to check off. You can't mm-hmm. ignore that step. And, and it's a, it's a box that could take years to check off. It's, you know, th- definitely, not only do you have to know Japanese, to say translate a Japanese game, but you have to know the colloquial language. And you also have to know the language to, I think the point where you know what to expect someone is going to say before they say it, you know what to expect. And, and if you don't, you won't be able to pick up on it when somebody says something that they weren't supposed to say. That's sort of, If somebody, you know, which is really important in humor, obviously, if somebody's Mm -hmm. like using irony or uh, that sort of, uh, you know, a dissonance in the language, if you don't know the language well enough to know what to expect, normally you can't pick up uh, on it when people start going, uh, going off on a tangent. Mm. You got to know those kind of reversals
0: in comedy. Exactly. Exactly exactly what, you know, the beat that you're supposed to hit and then
2: you, you know, zag to the left. (laughs) <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. So you need to know that, but that's not the most important thing <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in, being a good, in being a good translator, at least in in my opinion, because it gets comes around to that, okay, well then can you write? And one of the questions when I was at Square as an employee, I was there for four years, I guess, as an official employee, I was on the team that would interview new hires. And the question I would always ask is, so say we put you in a room and we said, we'd like you to write a novel. What kind of novel would you write? And just asking that question, I think every time people who had a good answer for that were hired and, and did a great job hmm. and people who floundered at that question or thought, Oh gee, I'm, you know, I don't think I would write a novel or I don't, I don't think I could generally you really want the, those writers who, or those people who will eventually become a writer if they don't do something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, sort of people who are destined to to write stuff because if you're not interested in being a writer localization is not a good career choice for you because it is going to require that yeah
1: we get a lot of people i think at least a couple times a month mm-hmm. asking mm-hmm. hey i really i really want to translate games i want to localize you know anime or i want to localize um you know x game how, how mm-hmm. do i get a job and my answer yep. is always, well, what's your level of Japanese and what have you done so far? Because I can't a lot of people are like, "What school do I go to? What track do I take?" Mm-hmm, and I'm right. like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. I I cannot tell you what to do with your life." Mm-hmm. Um right. but I can say like I I got a degree in it, so that worked for me, but I know plenty of people where getting the degree isn't good enough. Um mm-hmm. so it it's hard to say I, I can't tell you what to do, <laughs> mm-hmm, right? But it's also hard to say, oh, just just do this, because you need so much more than just learning how to read and speak Japanese, and because you need to know how to write in English. And a lot of people seem to not understand that you need to know your own language to translate into it.
2: Sure, um, sure, and and the industry often doesn't understand that.
1: Mm, that's true
2: it can be hard. And there's a lot of people, uh, you know, honestly not to impugn anyone out there, but there are a lot of people that are not great writers who translate and, you know, and I think it shows and a lot of them will move on to, to different things or different fields of translation because mm. just because someone is a good writer of a particular, in a particular genre, it doesn't mean that they're going to knock it out of the park in another genre. I mean, there's a, f- there's a handful of people that can, that can write anything, but, most people are going to have very strong areas and weak areas. And I've talked to, to friends who are in localization and, you know, they're just like, well, this dialogue stuff isn't for me. And that's actually just to be more specific about it. Game localization is 90% dialogue, Mm -hmm. which makes it very different from a lot of other kinds of translation. You know, it's certainly very different from novel translation. It's very different from technical translation, of course. And if you're not into writing dialogue, then you probably shouldn't be doing game translation. Or if you're in game translation at all, maybe you should handle the technical side of things or go into the business side of things or reporting game journalism. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other options that don't necessarily require that specific skill set or interest to set really, you know.
1: So would you say that you were a very big gamer before you started working in games so that you, you understood what they should sound like, you understood how they should feel?
2: Sure. I definitely did my share of gaming, although I did a lot more things like D &D and D than, than actual video games, just because of my my age and the, the era, mm-hmm. there wasn't a whole lot of RPG options when I was a kid and mm-hmm. had all that kind of time. I, I played everything there was, you know, Wizardry and Bard's Tale and that sort of thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But I hadn't played any JRPGs, actually, when the Square job came up. And I borrowed a copy of Final Fantasy VII <laughs> from a friend and a console because I didn't have a console. I had been gaming entirely on a Mac at the time, I think.
3: That's great.
2: Yeah, so I borrowed a console and a copy of FF seven and started playing it. And that was my first exposure to, to JRPGs and the level of JRPG translation at the time too, which not to again not to like cast aspersions on anyone. Uh, the translator, the main translator for that was a guy named Michael Basket. And legend has it that he had something like two or three months to do the whole game. Ooh, That's wow. a massive, massive amount of text. And entirely on his own. <laughs> And given what I know about the materials and resources that were available to the Final Fantasy VIII team, I can only imagine that he was, for the most part, translating completely blind, without any access to the game. Uh, this is—I'm just—I'm imagining this, but I, I just know that, like, in for Final Fantasy VIII, a lot, we had to play the games ourselves and use a Game Shark, which is a little hacker that
3: let you jump <laughs> to different scenes. Shark. I still yeah. have a game
2: shark. And and also let you record onto VHS tapes, uh, mm-hmm. so we would be recording scenes because they didn't even have game files uh, for the the first half of localization wow. on that.
1: That's wonderful because
2: the dev team hadn't thought to give it to them. It was pretty funny. See, yeah.
1: that's like the cool insider stuff that yeah. people probably are like anxious to know. Yeah, like wow, I'm gonna right. go home I... and mess with my Game Shark and see what I can do with it. <laughs>
2: Right, right. Well, and actually that's, that's a, you were talking about people, you know, asking you, Hey, how do, how do I become a translator?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That's one of the pieces of advice I feel good giving is on the writing side of things. If you don't have a body of work, by all means, start writing, get things online. It doesn't have to be printed in a book. If I'm a hiring at a game company and you come to me and say, hey, you know, I've learned Japanese. Here are my credentials. Here's where I went to school. You know, that's fine. We got that out of the way. You've you've passed your translation test. And I want to know how good a writer you are, how motivated a writer you are. If you say, hey, you know, I haven't published anything, but I've been writing fan fiction on this blog for the last three years. Here's a link. And I go and I look at it and it's well-written you're fine. That's like, you've already passed that test.
1: That is shocking to me.
2: That's, that's really good advice
0: though. That's good to be like, you know,
2: yeah. Like why would I care if it was published? I mean, if it was like officially somebody else gave their stamp of approval to it, if I can look at it and it's yours and it's good, that's all I needed to know.
1: (laughs) I think that's amazing advice because a lot of Mm -hmm. people are convinced that doing that won't get them anywhere Mm -hmm. at all. Um, but, but we, um, I don't know if you've heard of the Legends of Localization
2: um, books. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: he just started doing a website. Just like, I want to look at these and compare them. And now he's got books coming out. And Mm -hmm. we were just like, yes, good job. Like, we were so proud. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's a really good guy. Mm And I think it's it's getting to the point where people need to be Mm self-motivated and just start. Like you might not be getting paid for it, but it's giving you experience and it's giving you something to show. Right. Um, But I never would have thought that you could just like, go ahead, write a fan fiction and send it on. I mean, it does have to be well written. You can't just send in like (laughs) some, some garbage.
2: Exactly. And that's, yeah. And that's also, I think it's good for you too, because for the, you being the person who wants that job, uh, because, you know, if you don't want to write something, like if you if you don't feel confident writing fanfiction, you probably shouldn't be applying for a translation job. You should go do something else. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And that helps you out, too, then, if you're you start yeah, out on the fan fiction route and you're like, I'm going to become a translator and you do it for a couple months or maybe a year. And you're like, wow, I really don't like this. Then you can find out before you start down that road that you're like oh maybe I'd be better suited to something else for sure
2: and uh, uh, Kristen did you say that you had you had a degree in is it translation or it's
1: it's just in Japanese but I did um uh-huh. like my honors stuff um I translated um what's her name I've already forgotten her name um I translated like a woman who wrote in the 20s I translated a short work by her um, oh, okay. and so I did like a um, a mini thing. Um, I just went to school in like a New York school, and I it was mm-hmm. the closest school I could do from to my home to do Japanese, um, and it was the best I could do. <laughs> um, so a lot of people are always like, "Oh, what translation school can I go to?" And I'm like, "Ah, oh, there's one in Hawaii, and then there's one right. somewhere else." But you really, I mean, in my experience, everyone I know who is either a professor or a translator didn't didn't go to school for it no. specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, Like I took a class or two, but it was more um, comparing English to Japanese. It was never translate this and I'll grade you. I only had like one huge project on that.
2: Right. So that's definitely been my experience too, is that most people in the industry didn't go through a specific translation course. And I think part of that is just because there weren't that many translation courses offered. And there wasn't maybe that much interest in it. And you needed to have that sort of interest and also skilled people who are in academia to offer those courses.
1: I think a big problem people have is that, at least in the U.S., we're in the mindset that you can't do something unless you have a degree in it. Right. Um, and it, I think it's holding a lot of people back where they're like, well, I, I have to get a degree. But when I look up getting a degree in Japanese, everyone tells me it's not good enough, but I can't get a degree in translation because it doesn't exist. What do I do? This is what I want. Right. And it's hard. Right, right, right. It's hard to give them an answer because everyone's experience is different. And there really mm-hmm. wasn't a, a real track to go down. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. And, you know, maybe that'll change at some point in the future. But in terms of what people can do for themselves to prepare for the job and to improve their, their resume and their sort of appeal, uh, as a translator, as a prospective translator to a company is, and then this is really one of the main things that a translation course can give you too, which is that opportunity for self-improvement and, and feedback. Mm. And I went to a it was the American Translators Association ATA uh, conference, and gave a talk or two about game translation. And this is a conference of of, of professional translators and people who already have careers in translation. And there, I went to a talk there by a fellow who was running the translation course in Hawaii. I think at the University of of Manoa,
3: mm-hmm.
2: University of Hawaii at Manoa, and. And I asked him sort of somewhat impertinently in, in, in uh, after the talk, um, why, why should anyone go to a translation course? Uh, you know, not to be a jerk, but <laughs> I, I get that question a lot, and I didn't go myself, and so I have a hard time selling it to people. How should I sell it to, to them?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And his response made a lot of sense to me, which was, uh, you can, it's true, you can go into translation without A course without a degree in translation and you can go out into the wild world of professional translation and, and make your, and make your mark. And you know, some people succeed and some people won't. And it it may not have anything to do with whether you have that degree or not, but what you can get at in a translation course that is very, very hard to get in the real world is helpful feedback. And if you're in a translation specific course, you're getting that incredible, detailed feedback on everything you do from someone who is entirely invested in making you a successful translator. And that's very hard to get. The, I mean, the only feedback you get in in professional translation is, hey, you messed up."
1: <laughs> yep, mm-hmm. it's always it's yeah, always bad things. It's never something nice. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and, and there's that fiction that the translator needs to be invisible. You know, the, mm-hmm. the that invisible visible presence. Oh, I didn't even know it was translated. You know, yes, <laughs> that, how <laughs> oh, did that get sort to of English? Thing? <laughs> that's right. I've heard really? that so
1: many times. Of you shouldn't even you shouldn't even know the translator was there. You shouldn't hear their voice at all. And I'm like, what? Right. <laughs> yes, you <Right>. should.
2: <laughs> well, well, the question then is, so what voice are you hearing?
1: Yeah, exactly. How yeah, how do you, you know?
2: Hearing, yeah, yeah. Are you hearing the original Japanese voice? That's highly unlikely.
0: Yeah, I think there was a, a really nice article by Zach Davison, uh, oh, I, Zach. I think for Comic Book Resource. I can't remember which. I'll, I'll find the link. Um, but he he wrote something where he said, like, well, if you've read something I've translated... And it's a manga and you think like, oh, this really spoke to me. 90% of the time, that's my voice
2: that you really liked um, and not the original (laughs) Japanese. And it can't be the original Japanese because Mm -hmm. it's in Japanese, which is not to be totally obvious about it. But there is a difference between translating from Japanese or Chinese or Korean um, into English and translating from German into English Mm. or French into English. And it's a matter, it's a difference of degrees, but what passes for literary style or, or dialogue in Japanese is very different than the standards in English. And so in order to make something that is equally as successful in English as it was in Japanese, you're going to have to change a lot of it Hmm. just by necessity. And if you don't have a voice, and this is something that comes up a lot, actually, especially in, in literary translation you know when editors are looking at a manuscript this is just you know original manuscript uh, an american editor looking at somebody something written in english the first thing they look for is you know can i hear the author's voice is this voice compelling me and you can you can hear that on that first page you know when you're when you start reading it you get the sense that somebody's speaking to you
3: mm.
2: and it goes beyond the dialogue word choices it, it's sort of Everything about the prose and the pacing and how it's structured and if you can't hear that voice then most editors are not interested and, and the book will not get published mm. and that's just as important in a translation and And that's one way of I mean, it's a, it's a bit of an ineffable quality, but that's one way of talking about translations uh, Literary translations, you know, whether this is good or not. It doesn't have a voice and you can't rely on the on the original author's voice it certainly should inspire the voice that the translator uses and i think a really good literary translator is also sort of a literary chameleon and can embody a number of different voices but it's not going to be exactly the voice of the original nor can it come entirely from the original writer mm. Unfortunately, it'd be great if it could. It'd be make our job a lot easier.
1: <laughs> um, I was recently watching um, some some a group of I, I wouldn't call them podcasters. I don't really know what to call them, but the Giant Bomb. Oh um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, they were playing through all of Shenmue. <laughs> oh
3: wow!
1: And all of it, yeah. And uh, my fiance was watching, and he called me over and said, "Are these really literal translations?" And I was like, I won't be able to tell. And he went, No, look at it. And I went, was looking at it, and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is very bad. <laughs> and I, I usually can't tell, but it was very strange English, especially talking about times. And I don't know if you you're familiar with that game. <laughs> um, uh, this is
2: Shenmue. Uh, the Shenmue. I think it <laughs> was yeah, just the, the original one. one. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um. But have so you I, ever have I, you ever like encountered a game like that where you're you're playing or you're seeing someone play it and you're looking at it and going oh no
2: that's wrong yeah yeah it's I I I can't speak to Shenmu actually I'm looking up who
1: I'm not I didn't I didn't want to say who did it just in case you didn't want to talk about it I, I don't I really like uh, bad mouthing uh, uh, people uh, oh no is it someone yeah, you know
2: you know it's uh, I've certainly done a lot of stuff of, of which I'm not proud, uh, and I think that s- also a, so much of the quality of the final translation depends on the on the quality of the original writing.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's
2: hard to overstate that because I love translating stuff by uh, Matsuno.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, yeah, Sumi Matsuno, uh, because. It's so Mm well-written that it makes the translator's job really easy. You're not sitting there thinking, oh, boy, how do I fix this? And I've translated some games where, and I I won't name them, but (laughs) their idea of drama is to just repeat somebody's uh, somebody's name over and over again. (laughs) And that really doesn't work. In, I I would argue that it kind of doesn't work in Japanese, although they do get away with it more often. It's, it's sort of an accepted trope, but
3: mm-hmm.
2: that's sort of, you know, saying somebody's name over and over again as a way of, as a stand in for saying anything of, of, of content. And <clears throat> when you look at a, say a Hollywood movie, what they do is they'll do callbacks and things like that. They'll, they'll say things that are character specific that develop the character that, Bring a character arc to completion as opposed to just sort of leaning on this trope of saying, you know, mother, 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 that sort of thing. <laughs> and I know you you laugh because you've seen it a million times. Yeah. But, and and. Really, if you can and you're translating something like that, you should sit sit down and think of something interesting to say, something that calls back, you know, earlier points in the character. When when the Terminator in Terminator 2, when the Terminator is sinking down into the lava or mm-hmm. just before he goes, he he doesn't he doesn't like just say John, 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 you know. Yeah. <laughs> John doesn't go Terminator, Terminator, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, John's like, I order you not to go. Right. Because in, that's a callback to mm-hmm. his earlier thing when he realized, oh, hey, I can control this robot. Mm-hmm. And and then and the robot says, you know, now and now, now I know why you cry, but it's something I can never do. You know that mm-hmm. the, <laughs> that line, you know, is whatever cheesy or whatever, but it's callbacks to earlier parts in the character. And you're getting the sense of like, you know, art completion. And that's a really important thing that Hollywood does really well. It's sort of, you know, part of the standard playbook now. Mm-hmm. And I really want to
0: watch Terminator 2 right now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, you brought that up.
2: <laughs> oh, it's a great movie, and the uh, the thing, the problem is that so often in jap with Japanese games uh, is that you're dealing with a script that just doesn't hold together that well, and and you're left with the big drama moment not having something interesting to say, but just being sort of you know okasan okasan you know that kind mm. of thing. Mm-hmm. So that is that really puts an unfair burden on the shoulders of the translator and i think you you need a specific kind of translator to be able to handle that and it's never going to be as good as if the original was well written
0: is there like a, a certain writer i know you mentioned matsuno and he did uh you said earlier final fantasy 12
2: uh he did vagrant story vagrant story final fantasy tactics tactics ogre all several other games and there's like crimson shroud was another one he did much later and uh, he began as the director of Final Fantasy XII but stepped down midway through the project. Oh, I see. Um, however, many of the writers on Final Fantasy XII are... Uh, well, Kitahara-san is the main writer that works with Matsuno. She, she's working with him now, today, too. And they know you know the Matsuno style so well that they they did a great job of sort of continuing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and the the basic arc of the story was already set before he left
0: are there any other games besides matsuno games that you feel like have really good scripts or really strong stories or either things that you worked on or things you didn't work on yeah
2: i'm blanking on the guy's name uh sorry the the phoenix Wright. oh yeah that first phoenix Wright game i i should look it up right now but he um that was fantastically written I thought.
1: Yeah, that's one of the games that uh it was very funny. We recommend that people when people are just learning Japanese, we're mm-hmm. like play that game in Japanese. Yeah. It'll make you think and it'll really test you on how well. Yeah.
2: And I think that there's a version where you can switch back and forth now too. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah, mm-hmm. like the on the iPhone maybe, maybe the iOS version. Mm-hmm. Okay. Somebody was saying something along those lines.
1: That's pretty cool.
2: Should look into it. Uh yeah, I don't know whether that would be particularly useful. Certainly there's a lot of stuff that is a direct translation in that game. Mm. And then there's a, and then there's equally a lot of stuff that is not. And so maybe even that would be interesting.
1: Yeah, I know um, we also recommend Animal Crossing games uh-huh. because they have yeah. to change so many of the puns. So yeah. if you want yeah. to really so... like go in and see what the Japanese pun is, play the game in Japanese because it's simple language, but the puns you have to research and mm-hmm. kind of look up to understand and i think it's a good learning exercise yeah
2: yeah that's fantastic and boy it's so much easier these days to yeah. <laughs> get access to that material I, I read a lot of manga which was really the best place to see dialogue written down and and it's still a good resource i think but now that there's youtube clips of of everything and Netflix does Japanese shows with Japanese subtitles. They do. I know.
1: I just
0: started watching Terrace House. Yeah, there's Terrace House. There's. uh, What's the one in the diner? Is it Tokyo Diner? Tokyo... The one with the taxi driver? Tokyo Late Night Diner or something? Yeah, something like that. Um, That's great. That one's too awkward
1: for me. (laughs) It gives me the awkward shivers. (laughs) The awkward shivers? Yeah. Like watching
0: The Office kind of awkward shivers? No, no.
1: Like, I don't know. They just... It just makes me so uncomfortable that they're talking about that woman when she's not there. I just, I get, like, those, like, second secondhand awkward feelings. I'm like, oh, oh okay. I don't enjoy watching this. <laughs> yeah,
0: But it's nice that, like, you know, it used to be, like, so difficult to even find a Japanese version of something. I used to buy, like, VHSs yeah. of Dragon Ball Z or something. And it's like, just English. That's all you're going to get. And it's like, oh, I want to listen to Japanese sometime. And now you know it's yeah you can switch between them as you stream. Ah, kids these days have it so easy.
1: You're not even that old.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's great. Um, Yeah, it is very great. I'm hoping that at some point I'll I'll get to sort of study a a, a different language at some point, and I'll get to use all of this. Mm
0: -hmm. What a time to be alive! We have moon pie. So uh, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, as as we as we close, is there any anything you're working on? Anything that you'd like to talk about or anything that you have worked on that you're like, everyone, check this out. My great work.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Of course, in this industry, there's the the NDA, the non-disclosure agreement. Mm -hmm. So I can't talk about the stuff that I'm spending most of my time on. But. (laughs) There was one project that I did that I wrapped on about a year ago. Yeah, that's the problem these days: is uh, mobile games. It used to be that a game would come out like Phoenix Wright, Mm -hmm. and then everyone would stop playing Game Boy games, and so you go, "Oh well, I guess that that's gone now. Mm -hmm. No one will ever play it again." And and it's come back because of, of of iOS and mobile gaming, but. At the same time, a lot of mobile games have become very ephemeral because, uh, I've, I've done a lot of work for DNA and, uh, I did, I was actually lead writer on a game called blood brothers two oh. for, for about two years. And it was all, it was all original, uh, got to do the whole story and everything, which was a lot of fun. And the uh, we were we translated Blood Brothers one and then the writer left the company and, and said oh hey those guys were basically writing it anyway so just get them to to write Blood Brothers two <laughs> wow <laughs> that's cool <laughs> read it's it, I'd done actually several several game scripts so it wasn't entirely new but that small story every week schedule was was exciting and uh, a a good challenge
0: wow that sounds like a lot of fun so like every week it was like all right my new blood brothers story
2: it's kind of like your own tv show almost oh very much yeah exactly the same and and especially because it has to be formulaic because the game itself i mean there's not really much of a game it's one of those gotcha games where you're collecting cards which stand in for characters and you basically, you know, you're always trying to get the better, the better character. And some people don't love those games. Enormous <laughs> sums of money for this. But but you can also play for free. Um, the problem is that I don't know even know if it's being supported anymore. So it would be really hard to to go back and like see the story and progress through the story. Hmm. Uh, unlike a package game. And so which is a little, you know, it's a little sad. But uh, that was something that I had a lot of fun working on. I'm um, Working as a writer on another game that I can't talk about, let's see <laughs> translating S-A-N-D-A's. yeah Some yeah game projects
1: a, I'm sure they'll yeah. be great whenever you can talk about them yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, you know the that's the funny thing is that there's I know that square at one point was doing sort of a live they were live tweeting the localization of one of their games, mm-hmm. which I think is a great idea
1: that's yeah, yeah that's, that's a cool. great idea.
2: And I'd love to open that up even more. And I, you know, and I understand, especially from the, the part of the devs, you know, it's only been a few years since they started talking to localization, mm-hmm. let alone trusting them to be the public face of the creative process. Right. I mean, that's a it's a leap. So, you know, kudos to them for for even trying it out. But well, maybe in the future,
0: once the game comes out, we'll re-edit the podcast with a robot voice that says, "I'm working on Final Fantasy 19," <laughs> or something. Whenever it comes out, but yeah, that's uh, and so what? What's your website so that people can come check check you out and and see all your cool things you're doing?
2: Probably the best place to follow that sort of thing is Twitter at Mark A O K A. J-I-Y-A Aokadjia.
0: Everyone go follow him right now. (laughs) Right now or
1: we ban you from the podcast forever.
0: Yes, and you can't listen to any future episodes until you follow. And then from there they can find your website and your Instagram. That is the exact same handle.
2: A-O-K-A-J-I-Y-A Yeah, Yeah. And everyone go heart uh, five of his pictures.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Another requirement.
2: Uh, Yeah, another requirement for for future. Yeah. That's that's right actually i am i'm also this is something that I can talk about, uh, even though it's pretty vaporware at the moment, but mm-hmm. uh, I am working on a photo book oh cool uh, you know, photo project going on, um, but I do it when I'm not translating, so it means like one hour a month basically <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh yeah, so that's one of these years that'll come out. I'm also writing the great American novel, but <laughs> <Aren't> <laughs> well, we everyone
0: all. Else. yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, Alex, thank you so much for for coming on the show.
2: Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you guys. Yes. And I love the I love the website, by the way. While thank we're plugging you. things, I oh, love thank the you. Yeah. Maybe we can do something together one <gasps> of these days. Maybe we
0: definitely will. My
1: dreams are coming true. Yes.
0: <laughs> you all heard it here, folks. It's happening. So thank you again, and goodbye to everyone. I'm Michael.
1: I'm Kristen. Bye. Bye.